Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me in today's episode are Anne-Marie and Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst team. We have a bit of an Irish theme running through this week's episode as we're talking about Ryanair's recent earnings and take a closer look at the company. We discuss Stripe's announcement that it plans to go public within the next year and we look at whether TikTok could actually be banned in the United States. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Amory Amish, welcome to another episode of Stock Club. Good to have you both here today. Um, I just wanted to say, did you see the stat that came out yesterday that uh, January, it was the best January on the stock market since 2001? Mm. Wow. Yeah. I didn't so, see that, actually. It's good news. Good news. Yeah, 22 years. A little bit worryingly positive news, you know, that kind of way. <laughs> Well, yeah. let's stay optimistic. Hopefully it's a signal for the rest of the year. And there's so many green shoots emerging from the World Economic News, like the Inflation Reduction Act, is that what it's called in the US, is starting to cut through. It was the we huge have, infrastructure bill, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's uh, We have the relaxation of uh, restrictions in China, and then the price of power is dropping around Europe. So I think there's a lot of things happening around us at the moment that give us reason to be excited or indeed optimistic. Yeah. Funny that you say that because just before we got on the recording, I saw Jason Moser was tweeting about how uh, debt defaults have increased uh, significantly in the US. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I like uh, Amory's stance better. I prefer to be a pe- pessimist because you're either right yeah. or you're happy. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> There's nowhere to lose there. Um, yeah, so we'll see. Look, it's one month out of the year down. Isn't that the, isn't that the way we have to be thinking? Wow, what a way to live your life. <laughs> well, one of, us has to, one of us has to be right, and that's what we want here. You know, we want balance on the podcast. <laughs> Someone has to come out on top. No one can split the difference. It's a designated right person every week. Yeah. Um, right, let's kick off the episode. So, and we're kicking it off with the company I'm looking forward to talking to. Speaking of pessimism, I think uh, it's one our Irish listeners know all too well, for better or worse, and that is Ryanair. So, it actually reported earnings earlier this week. Uh, Emmett, you were looking at this one. Absolutely, Mike. Well, on Monday, Ryanair reported fares and passenger numbers were up. Demand for Easter and summer flights are hopping and the vast majority of staff pay was restored. On top of that, record profits and more expensive fares were announced. After tax profits came in at €211 million for the quarter, that is October to December, uh, the airline is performing better than its pre-COVID years. And CEO Michael O'Leary, or actually the group CEO, Michael O'Leary, added that the relative strength of the US dollar and 
the end of most border restrictions had encouraged long-haul travellers to make bookings to travel to Europe once more. When I heard the results, Mike, it reminded me of a piece I'd read in early December on or in the online version of Fortune, which was called How CEOs Can Lead in a Recession and Come Out Stronger, Five Powerful Strategies from Corner, corner Office Veterans. And the article said, that furloughing has been particularly powerful at airlines where demand completely whipsaws as the economy fluctuates and that uh, Reiner's Michael O'Leary embraced a contrarian strategy in and around spring 2020 as he has always done uh, when the pandemic had crushed demand for travel and drove some other airlines out of business. Yeah, and that's kind of the main topic of conversation is the pandemic, the recovery, and perhaps how the company has fared throughout that. So looking at a quick look at the chart, it's absolutely rebounded, maybe in a very volatile way or volatile fashion. Um, How is the outlook looking for Ryanair now throughout, through the pandemic and then out the other side, I suppose? Well, I think uh, I think it's looking good, and it kind of comes back to this guy Michael O'Leary, who I wouldn't mind talking about for a minute, because here in Ireland, Michael O'Leary is just known to everybody. He's a known name. Reiner was established in the early eighties, and Michael O'Leary worked as an advisor to Reiner's founder, whose name is Tony Ryan, before joining in nineteen eighty-eight as the chief. Uh, I did. Deputy Chief Executive. And then Mick uh, O'Leary became CEO in 1994. And he's held on to this top job ever since. And it's really under his leadership that the carrier has grown from a really small airline that used to fly just from Waterford to London Gatwick. And then uh, it ultimately became Europe's largest carrier. So like on that point, they're, they're now taking delivery of 124 new aircraft this summer. They've launched 230 new routes. So they've now got uh, 2,450 routes this coming summer on something like 3,200 daily flights. Anyway, that fortune piece I mentioned said that while other airline CEOs were firing staff, Mick O'Leary reckoned that his competitors' retreat opened a wide corridor for Ryanair to expand when the good times rolled again. And the centerpiece of that strategy was furloughing rather than laying off almost all of his, you know, 17,000 pilots and cabin crew. But what I thought was interesting was that Eddie Wilson, who's the DAC CEO, which is Reiner's largest subsidiary, said uh, during the week, or no, at the time, actually, that we need to hold on to our people so we can ramp up quickly and gain market share when the market rebounds. And that's exactly what happened. O'Leary grabbed slots he that were dumped by competitors at a number of airports and he won, you know, bargain rental deals for gate capacity that would have sat idle in rough times. Uh, Reiner got into Venice's Marco Polo Airport. It introduced a service to Zagreb and expanded in markets like Marseille and Turin and Malaga. So really, I do think that with Reiner, we're not looking at a typical organization, or rather we're looking at a typical organization run by an untypical strategic leader. Yeah, I, I, he he definitely, uh, I, is it fair to say he divides opinion in Ireland? Um, <laughs> comes out with a lot of controversial topics, famous standing seats or the standing tickets on planes from Dublin <laughs> to London. But I, there's something about him that's very, you know, once you look past it, once you dig a bit deeper, it's actually, oh, and actually 
Michael Leary isn't the one kind of coming on saying how to run the company and stuff. He's an Irish tax resident. Do you know, there's a lot of mm. Irish billionaires that aren't. Um, so yeah, he's, he's quite commendable really. And the worst part about it is kind of right too, because he says mm. the famous diatribe about the standing of flights is that they'll be the first ticket sold. And I know for a fact they will be too. So yeah, I, I, I think I, I kind of like him, but I also kind of get my head oh, wrecked by Ryanair about once a month. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he is, a, he is a strategic genius. He lectured in my class in 2006 for my postgrad in strategy. And based on what I observed and what I know, I've little doubt that Ryanair will book the trend over the next five years and beyond. I mean, when you look at the business today, um, it's market share in Europe. Um, for all air travel is currently 18% versus 13.3% pre-pandemic, which is really shows the strategy that he implemented during that terrible chapter was so effective. Before the coronavirus pandemic hit, Ryanair flew about 148 million travelers in the fiscal year 2020-2021 its passenger number slumped by more than 80% to 27.5 million passengers, you know, as every airplane was grounded. And of course, revenue took a big hit. But when you cut to today, and as Reiner said on Monday, it has driven down its unit costs in the fourth quarter to 30 euro per passenger, excluding fuel, and its planes were 93% full. So when he talks about things like, I'm going to have standing room, obviously that's just attention grabbing, headline grabbing. It's just his, it's just his kind of version of comedy. I actually push back on that. I think if he was allowed to do it, he would would 100% have standing room. 100%. He'd be getting rid of toilets. What what was the one Amory is charging to use the bathroom? Yeah, he wanted to charge to use the bathroom with the idea being that it would discourage people from going on the plane so then they could only have one bathroom on the plane. And he was like, I can put an extra row of seats in if we only have one bathroom. He was like, it would reduce everybody, the cost of everybody's ticket by a fiver. Yeah. But part of being a strategic leader who's driven uh, by the bottom line is that you have to be seen a little bit like a maniac. So when someone comes to, but when somebody comes to negotiate with you, they actually know what they're getting. And I heard a story secondhand uh, about a very large car rental company that were there that tried to do a a deal with Reiner so that their cars were uh, the car of choice recommended by Reiner. And it was an early morning meeting in at a Dublin location at the car rental company's HQ. And, um, Michael O'Leary arrived and it was all this breakfast laid out, a fancy breakfast. And the CEO of the car company was there and O'Leary walked in, looked at the food, uh, threw out a few expletives about how he's not going to waste time with a company that pisses and wastes away uh, its shareholders' money on breakfasts like this and stormed out. And one of the people working for that company ran out after him and he came back in. And as he said to us, like, this is not about the breakfast. You have no. to go into these conversations with your fists swinging. So when he talks about that kind of stuff, it's controversial, but you kind of know you're dealing with someone who is unhinged, which is probably the first cousin <laughs> of, of genius. In, or at in, least genius acting is unhinged. Intentionally, intentionally. unhinged me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. fact, yeah, no, genius that is being portrayed as unhinged. So he's a very, very impressive leader. And for that reason, his airline, which for frankly is at this stage, um, the fact that he's at the helm for over 30 years, you know, will outperform the market. 
Yeah. Do you think in, in some ways he gets away with it because Ryanair as a company also leans into the unhinged element? Like their social media presence is unhinged. Do you remember when someone tweeted at them and said, <laughs> guys, I paid for a window seat and they were sat in the exit row and there's only a tiny window on, in, the, on, in the exit seat door. And then Ryanair responded by circling the window in the <laughs> image that the person had sent and sent it straight back to them. Yeah, they get it. They, I suppose it suits the kind of the aura around the company. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I, I'll always say this is kind of an economic moat in action where Ryanair, mm. you have to use them because nowhere else is flying your location. Do you know what I mean? Mm. They're mm. the only place you can get direct flights. And I'm locked into this like love or hate need relationship where I hate <laughs> using them because the, you feel so gouged. Like you have to pay mm. for absolutely everything. But then I use them all the time because I have no other choice. And I, I, there's something there where it's like, well, yeah, you can get flights to these locations at this price because we do all that stuff. And it, it, it kind of, it all fits into this, I suppose. Yeah, it's a very but interesting company though. It is. But when you look at the, at the purchaser's decision process when they're choosing an airline or a carrier, of course, number one is it goes to where they're aiming for. But other <laughs> no, things are like... Number one, it's going uh, in the right direction. Yeah, <laughs> Fair enough. No, uh, you got to put that down. Number two, it gets in the air. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that actually is it that it gets down out of the air. So like Ryanair has an impeccable safety record. It has an incredible timekeeping record. And these are the things that matter more, I think, than whether you're given sandwiches on a Delft plate or whether you have to pay $9.99 for a really bad toasty. Like yeah. you want to make go get to where you're going at the best possible price as safely as possible and as promptly as possible. And I think Reiner just deliver. And that's why they have captured so much market share in Europe. I remember he said that there were two industries to change the fortunes of Ireland. And for those who are not from Ireland and who aren't on top of their geography, Ireland is an island and it's detached from the rest of Europe. So we were we were detached by ocean. We are detached by ocean from the next European country. And he said there were two things that ultimately were responsible for the economic upheaval and revival of Ireland as a nation. And it was the birth of mobile phones where we could now stay mobile, talk to each other, text each other and do work on the go. And the second was being able to fly to wherever you wanted to go at a price you could afford. I mean, there was a time, I think, where a flight to London was like a thousand pounds. Like that's mm-hmm. prohibitive to this day. Like there's no, like, and we're talking about, I, I presume 40 years ago, you know, that's prohibitive. My I used to live in London and he used to, it used to be over a month's wages to fly home at Christmas. So you'd have to get the bus to Liverpool, the ferry to... Belfast and the wow. bus to Dublin and then the bus to go. It took like 26 hours to get home from London. Wow. wow. <laughs> That's a I real mean, back in my day kind of story, but there you go. <laughs> That's what Michael O'Leary is threatening people with every time. Yeah. Do you want to go back to that? You can get on the ferry <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> and that's it. Like there isn't another choice. Mm. And they had a campaign for years running in the paper, which was a penny a seat. And of course you're right. When you layer in the bags and the priority access, and the sandwiches and whatever else, you know, you've obviously paid a hell of a lot more than one cent or a penny. But for years, they were selling seats on flash offers, fill this plane at a penny. So of course, it was controversial, it was eye-catching. It got the conversation going. And then you, you see cuts today and, and, and the businesses more or less carrying one out of nearly every five people who fly around Europe. Yeah, it's mm. great. I just, I just can't wait to see the transatlantic. Are there, are there Ryanair transatlantic flights? 
There are they no. Would, they would be hilarious. There are no. They're not economical. No. Yeah, they've been they have been asked on several times to start flying an American route, and they always say no, we're not interested. There was Wow Air, which was Icelandic, and I they're flew kind of Wow once, yeah, yeah. They're similar to Ryanair in terms of like this is absolute bare bones, and they were flying transatlantically. And before the pandemic, they went bankrupt, and it was really sudden. It was wait, woke up one day, every single Wow flight's been canceled. We're selling all the planes. Goodbye. This has been nice. Like it was very, it was very, very sudden. I will say though, from personal experience, if one out of five European people are, are flying with Ryanair, people who aren't flying with Ryanair are apparently doctors because I was on a flight to Malaga in October and it was a Ryanair flight, but on the same day, an Aer Lingus flight was also going to Malaga and there was a medical emergency on my flight, which turned out to be someone had had too much to drink because we had a two hour delay and it was 11 p.m. at night. And they called for a doctor over the PA system <laughs> and nobody, nobody moved. Yeah. Every, everyone just looked around and there was no doctors on board. So don't have a medical emergency aboard a Ryanair. <laughs> take away. Do- doctors fly Aer Lingus. Yeah. Oh, is that out of Dublin? I mean, a medical emergency out of Dublin where yeah. one of the passengers was overserved. I mean, come on, it's such yeah. an Irish stereotype. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. And we, it was because we had been delayed. We were set up for failure. We had been in the airport already. It, the flight was meant to go at nine. It ended up going at 11. It just, it was warm. It was just we. Were, it wasn't great. Yeah, and then mm. arriving to Malaga, the yeah. hangover before you even start your holiday. It's lovely. Yeah. Um. Okay. I think we'll we'll move on. So, and we're going to talk about TikTok, which is the first time for a while in this pod. The company's back making headlines, and none of them are good. The company's chief executive Xiao Zi Chu. Um, that's a bad pronunciation, I imagine, but you'll have to deal with it, is set to appear in front of the Congress next month to address security concerns over the app. Amory, there was rumors coming out there a while back about data being shared with the Chinese government and with almost a third of Americans on the app. How much of a security risk is TikTok right now? Yeah, the the real fact of the matter is we like actually don't know because we have two very powerful voices that are in complete cr- contradiction with one another and they just keep fighting. We, we don't actually know what's going on. So on one side, of course, is the American government, which is hammering on about national security concerns. So there's John Carlin, who previously ran the Justice, Justice Department's National Security Division, and he said it's not just the collection or theft of that data that's concerning. It's also manipulating what it is that you see. And the question is for national security professionals, do we want China determining what it is that we see here in America? While FBI Director Chris Ray said the Chinese government has shown a willingness to steal Americans' data on a scale that dwarfs any other, adding that Americans should be very concerned about giving China that much ability to shape content, engage in influence operations, and access to people's devices. Mm, and as you I've can heard, see, like this, I've heard conspiracy theories on this that, that like TikTok in China is very different. And it's like educational and stuff compared yeah, to me- what is happen in america yeah yeah me and emmett were just talking about that where i was where i was like i have heard from people who travel to china that the content that is directed at chinese children is all math games and let's learn foreign languages and all of the content directed at american children is what skateboarding videos and you know anarchy yeah (laughs) just (laughs) nothing productive um so i could see that but like as you can see the conversation is very much shaped in a china versus u.s way rather than like a tiktok versus u.s way and that's obviously because the chinese government has pretty spectacular control over its tech companies and they don't so tiktok is owned by ByteDance, and the chinese government is technically not involved in tiktok itself they own a subsidiary who owns 1% of ByteDance. So there's just kind of this very small backdoor that people are concerned about. And they think, listen, the Chinese government has before pressured tech companies to give up data or give up access. We're worried that this could happen with the, t- the data that TikTok is collecting. 
Yeah. And like it's it's not just the US that's like thinking in this way. Like India very famously banned TikTok um in September of 2020 and there were 200 million Indian users using TikTok and like it wasn't just TikTok that was banned, it was a number of Chinese apps. So so like it's it's a kind of an international fear. I know the EU is worried about it. The review of TikTok is actually happening here in Ireland because this is where the um kind of tech oversight happens. So it's it's kind of this ongoing conversation, but like TikTok is very kind of on the offensive, um, Michael Beckerman, who's TikTok's head of public policy for the Americas, said the concerns are overstated and simply make for good politics. He said that TikTok collects less data than any other social media app, which like even this point is up for debate. So David Robinson, who's the co-chief executive of Internet 2.0, said, in our opinion, based on detailed analysis, TikTok harvests much more data than WeChat. Their aggressive way of continuously requesting access to contacts after a user has decided not to share contacts is unusual. But then this was countered by the University of Toronto Citizen lab that said that the app did not exhibit overtly malice, malicious behavior. So it's just kind of everyone on both sides, officials on both sides, experts on both sides arguing, going back and forth and back and forth. And for a little bit there, we thought, right, we'll get away from this by insisting that TikTok store the data for every country domestically within that country. That was a big thing in the US. So Oracle overtook that job um, by overseeing the servers. But then BuzzFeed had a big article that came out a couple months ago that said, in a leak from TikTok itself that Chinese engineers within China could access that data. And so it's just, we don't really know what's going on. It's, 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 it's very kind of murky. And there's also a huge double standard here at play because like the Electronic Frontier Foundation um, basically said, listen, like if the United States government is going to call up TikTok and say that this is a national security issue, we're really worried about data privacy. Like, then you need to also be holding Twitter and Facebook and like Grubhub to account because it is also known that they hold an awful lot of data and the United States government has flexed their power previously and and forced those companies to turn data over to them. So, you know, it's a bit of a double standard here. It's the United States expecting to be able to play by its own rules and, and, you know, and expecting a foreign company to like adhere to whatever they want. So it's, it's a really interesting time. But in yeah. fairness, Grubhub, you know, like what what do they have on you? Like your favorite pizza toppings? Oh, your ad- your, your address. address. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Have you guys noticed on TV lately, on good old fashioned linear TV that shows good old fashioned TV adverts, uh, TikTok have been pushing this safety message. If you're a parent of a child with TikTok, Ooh. you can switch on... Uh, safety control guardian controls oh they're pushing it quite heavily so they really are pushing back and i guess are trying to create this good citizen awareness in in the the minds of parents and guardians around ireland anyway yeah well i think the onus is really on them now because it's not just this uh appearing in front of congress um tiktok has been banned from government issued cell phones in the u.s and it's starting to get banned from college campuses as well is that right yeah yeah, there's a uh, the app is banned on any federally issued phone within the United States, and it is banned on any state issued phone in 31 U.S. states. Um, and a number of big universities have also banned the app, and that includes like Auburn, Arkansas State, the University of Florida, Boise State. You'll notice that those are all public universities, which the banned had to happen in order to comply with standards set by the state government. So if you're a recipient of state funds, you had to fall in line with state policy. And if that was to ban TikTok, then you needed to remove it from anything held by the university itself. There's a little bit of variation within that ban in that some universities had to ban TikTok on their school Wi-Fi, whereas some didn't. It was only on school computers and cell phones. So there is a bit of variance there. But the Wi-Fi thing is is uh, is bitty, is pretty big and you know you're seeing it the especially kind of, in college campuses like that would be yeah 
the main demographic of TikTokers. Yeah, and it's been interesting to see like the the groups that have been hit hardest by this are actually like universities or groups within universities that have curated a successful online following within TikTok. So an example of that was Texas A&M's physics and astronomy department had built a TikTok with more than 1.5 million followers. It was just them like showing off experiment, experiments and answering questions and explaining things. Um, and they have had to stop posting and their now updated bio just reads, we no longer post to TikTok, check our YouTube for the latest videos. But I think this is a really interesting point, though, because some federal and state employees had been using TikTok as this very valuable engagement tool. You know, I think it's a good practice to go where the people are. And I think about like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who had a very successful TikTok presence where, you know, she would bring people around the Capitol. She would answer questions. She would remind people to vote. She would sit down and explain policy or explain, you know, how moving a bill between the houses worked or something like that. And I think that that's really valuable, particularly when it comes to engaging young people. So it's sad to think that they will be denied this engagement tool. Um, And she has carried that content over to Instagram, but it just doesn't have the same reach because of the lack of an algorithm. So I don't... Because that's not exactly where the younger voters would be either. No. So it's, it's, it's interesting that that we're losing that tool with the idea of being national security in mind without anything to to replace it. So I, I don't know how much these this type of ban will like be reflected in future bans because obviously federal employees in public universities, they do have very sensitive data on their phones. So I suppose it is fair enough that, you know, I don't think the senators should necessarily have the TikTok app on their phone in case, I don't know, it's collecting information out of their email. Um But it also means because it's a ban set on federal employees, it's much easier for the government to, number one, enact and number two, follow up on because that's that's the government. It's governmental property. So I I don't know how kind of if we were to expand this to the general population of the United States, I think it would be much, much, much more difficult to to enact and then follow up on. Um, But I think it is a worthwhile conversation to discuss, like, what type of communication gap or entertainment gap is going to be created within the U.S. if overnight TikTok just goes away. Yeah. And I imagine the students of those universities aren't too happy that TikTok is being banned. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of a funny question because like in true Gen Z fashion, most of the students like there's a, a couple people like went to college campuses that were impacted and interviewed kids. And, you know, like some people were very much like it doesn't matter. I'll just access it using my cell phone data or, you know, they're like, oh, I'll just put a VPN on my phone and get around it. Um there were some that were upset that the universities themselves weren't going to be able to host things anymore. They um, Insider spoke to Etta Carpenter, who was a senior and a rower at UT Austin, and she actually said that a big way that they had found for recruiting new rowers was by demonstrating what a student-athlete life looked like and showing day-in-the-life videos on TikTok, and they were no longer allowed to do that. And she said that that was a, you know, it was a loss. But the thing that struck me the most was just – you know, I think universities have been very transparent with students by saying we have to do this in order to comply with this state law. The reason this state law was enacted was due to data privacy concerns, right? They say that to students very abruptly. And it's really interesting to watch students go, I really, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> like the Guardian has this great quote from Maureen Sparrow, who is a U.S. high school student. And she said, I don't really care that these corporations have my data as long as I know they have it. At this point, I'm so used to all social networks having all of my data that I feel it's just the price I have to pay to connect with others. Whereas there was this viral TikTok video a while ago that kind of discussed, it was someone discussing data privacy concerns about TikTok on TikTok itself. And the top comments were, am I the only one who doesn't care if China collects my data? 
And the second top comment was, let the Chinese government have my data. They know me better than I know myself. (laughs) So (laughs) it's just very interesting to see the government be very, very worried about about something. And that's justifiable. But have the the general public, the most important members of the general public, arguably the young people who fuel this service, be like, I I just I I don't know. Just it's fine. Just take it. I you know I I don't know what it what you could be using it for anyway. So yeah, I think if they were to do an all out ban, people would be pretty upset. Mm. And then there was this big hullabaloo way back when when TikTok US was up for sale and all that yeah. nonsense. But is there a, ever a chance that that could actually happen? That TikTok or at least the US side of TikTok be, could mm. become its own US company and completely detach from China? Yeah, I mentioned it a little bit earlier so that Oracle is technically overseeing the most important aspects of American TikTok currently. So it hosts the servers that hold American data, supposedly, and those are meant to be non-accessible to Chinese employees. And then they also get to review all algorithm changes that are enacted in China before they get pushed to American users. So Oracle is essentially like the fil- the American filter, if you will. Um, but it is possible that the U.S. government could pursue a complete severance of American TikTok from the Chinese parent company ByteDance. Um, in order for them to do that, though, they'd have to pursue a divestiture order through the Committee of Foreign Investments in the United States, um, which is currently investigating TikTok. So there, something could come of this. Um, interestingly, this is our, this was done in 2019 by for Grindr. Its majority stakeholder was a Chinese company, and the U.S. government was worried that data from the app could be used to blackmail people, and they forced a divestiture. And so in theory, they could pursue this method. And it's essentially like asking politely. You go to ByteDance and you say, listen, we're going to ban you from the United States unless you sell this asset. And then if they don't do anything, they can actually pass it to the United States president who can order a forced sale and basically say, you need to find someone to buy you in the United States or that's it. You're closing down. Um it, it takes a while to do that. So it took Grindr a year to find a buyer and execute the deal. Um and TikTok it's, is a much bigger scale now as well. It's That's the exact point I was about to say. Nothing so large has ever gone through this process before. Yeah. And that's actually a big reason that the Trump administration backed off a few years ago when TikTok was basically, they, they put some deadline, like some four-week deadline saying TikTok is going to be banned, blah, blah, blah. And then they used an administrative order to try and stop it. And TikTok challenged them in federal court. And it took so long for that order to go through the court system that then the Biden administration came in before it was decided, and TikTok actually ended up winning the court case. So, you know, it's very difficult to see how they would force this through. And there's actually a secondary issue, which is the algorithm that TikTok uses. You know, the real, the bread and butter, the absolute foundation of the app, the thing that makes it so special isn't owned by TikTok. It's owned by ByteDance, and it's licensed to TikTok. So there is an entire possibility that ByteDance turn around and say, fine, we will sell you American TikTok. Have it. You can have the infrastructure. But we own the algorithm, and we're not going to license you the algorithm. And then it it's essentially just turns into like Instagram Reels then. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, speaking of Instagram and, and Meta in general, how does all of this affect the company, do you think? That's a very open-ended question there. Yeah. It, it's definitely something that's kind of floating in the financial waters because I suppose if TikTok were to be outright banned, it would leave this wide open gap in the short form video market. And we'd be going, who's going to go next? Who's going to, who will be the next TikTok? And I'm sure Meta would love to jump in there with Instagram Reels. Um, but there's also YouTube Shorts. Both are kind of, you know, in that space. Um, but I think it would be pretty difficult for either of these players to effectively fill the gap. Like TikTok's greatest greatest asset is the algorithm. 
And in my view, neither Google or Meta has gotten that has gotten close enough to the algorithm. Um, And it would also just be very, very difficult. It's very difficult to migrate an audience. So you know, there would probably be this mad dash to try and get the most popular, most powerful, most influential people to move from TikTok to another format or another platform in the hopes that their audience would migrate with them. Like that is where I would see the competition being. But sometimes like that's not successful. It's um, something like the vast majority of current TikTok users have accounts on Facebook or Instagram um, or YouTube. And they there's a sense there that like those those accounts aren't used for the same thing. You know, it's TikTok is entertainment and those other things are social media. And so I just I don't I don't know. Like it's it's so hard to predict an idea of just saying if this if tomorrow this app disappeared, where would everybody go? You know, so some small part of me is like maybe outside. Maybe people would go outside. <laughs> <laughs> like rather than looking for an alternative. You're, like maybe it would be really a big, a big boom cycle in uh, crafts. Yeah, like knitting. Knitting could be the next TikTok um, because we really didn't, you know, like maybe it would be huge for Netflix and content creators because people would be forced to say, well, uh, I want to see decent entertainment anymore and no one yeah. has figured out how to I've match got, me with that. I've got two so. hours back in my day all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, so I guess we would see. It's, it's, it's definitely something, though, that people are discussing. I have seen that take on Seeking Alpha. I have seen analysts like pitch that as a tailwind for meta they're going full hog 2023 tiktok's gonna get banned and and then this will be the return of meta but if the like if that's really your argument are you really going to tell me that if tiktok gets banned mark zuckerberg is going to come back out of the metaverse and go right guys we're going full steam ahead with short form video full focus on instagram forget that meta thing we'll come back in a couple years like the company's already moved on i would say in some senses so like i like it's i don't know i don't think it's going to be this incredible win for for meta yeah, it's a very interesting hypothetical. Emish, how do you feel about the thought of an influencer auction? Would you be shopping around your, your many, many followers? I don't know if I have that many followers, Mike, but um, <laughs> I do know the power of influencers. And a couple of years ago, um, John and I sat down, actually, was it? Yeah, in, we, we sat with one of the senior marketeers in L'Oreal uh, down at Hudson Yard in New York and asked, like, if you had a budget to spend for a brand new brand, what would you do with it? And she was very clear. She said, I wouldn't go above the line. I wouldn't put an ad in the paper. I wouldn't put do any of that stuff. You find as many influencers as you can, but micro-influencers, those who have like 500 followers who hang on every word they say, and you find a way of rewarding them. So we all know the power of this micro-influencing below the line or semi-below the line strategy. So I do think... um, uh, You do do think you'd get a nice price for your... (laughs) <laughs> for your good word <laughs> it's, everyone will be well, fighting for for emmett and charlie d'amelio that'll be where well, the real heat is. yeah don't you know yeah of course i'll have to just um figure out what am i worth yeah what would what would your <laughs> idea of product be if you were if you were to start your career new as an influencer what to promote say? yeah um crypto I guess, crypto scams and oh diet, uh, and diet pills <laughs> That's right, exactly. I think uh, you're right. Crypto, diet pills, hair restoration, formulae, um, all that kind of stuff. He would make NFTs for stocks. So it would be like, for stocks. He would say, Called stocks. It, it would be the stock symbol as an NFT sold to people who like stocks. An NFT of the stock certificate. Yes, perfect. Okay. I'm in. Where do I sign? Sounds good. Okay. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Uh, moving on then, we got some very exciting news happening this week in my Wall Street. There are a lot of changes and we are launching a new email product called Charging and Fearless. Amish, can you talk, us, talk our listeners through exactly what they can expect when they sign up? Yeah, well, there's a lot of downsizing in the tech world at the moment, which I think could be rephrased as right-sizing. There's only so long that a company can spend more cash than it generates. And that runway is vastly reduced when the funding landscapes become more like deserts than rainforests. Anyway, under this right-sizing theme or whatever one wishes to call it, there's a catalyst for change everywhere. And my Wall Street is no different. And when I think back when John Tyrrell and I quit our day jobs about nine years ago, we wanted to build something remarkable. And that's exactly what we did, evident, I suppose, by the fact that of the five million or so app downloads that we've had around the world, about 90% of those were organic, which means that the audience and customers found us as opposed to us paying to find them. Uh, we launched a lot of products along the way. And as most of our listeners will know, we have learned uh, our learning product on all platforms. We've My Wall Street app, which is a product named after the company name uh, on all platforms. We launched Academy, two podcasts, a whole pile of emails, My Wall Street Advisory LLC, an app from My Wall Street Advisory LLC, Horizon, and so many other things. And all of these were great but we needed to measure everything against remarkable. Like that's the key word in what we three here on this call and what we in my Wall Street want to do. We want to be remarkable. We want to do things that are remarkable, not great, but remarkable. And the net upshot of that as a sponsoring word was a tidy up. So we've done all these things over the years and in various degrees of great, but we need them all to be remarkable. So at the center of our product suite, sits or I should say sat the My Wall Street app, which since its launch has taken the vast, vast majority of My Wall Street's resources from capital to people, technology stack, you know, user design and all reporting tools, regulation, advisors. It has taken the vast, vast majority of everything that My Wall Street has done. And as I said at a recent Horizon broadcast, it has within it dozens of micro features of varying value. So to cut a long story short, we took a long, hard look at the My Wall Street product. We got feedback from you, our listeners and our subscribers. We talked to our advisors. We looked at the usage stats and could see that by a country mile, the feature in My Wall Street that was most liked, most loved, most shared was stock of the month. People want to know what stocks we think will grow over the long term with supporting rationale. So we've decided to 
retire the My Wall Street app and launch a new service that does more of what people actually want. We've called it Charging and Fearless, which is a name I came up with after the two statues on Wall Street, Charging Bull, which is also known as the Bull of Wall Street, and Fearless Girl, which is a wonderful statue. And I urge anyone, if they're in New York, to go down to Wall Street and have a look at those two statues. They're great. So Charging and Fearless. So here's what it is. It's a weekly, high-value, totally original and completely shareable email that can be read in 30 seconds. Its purpose, and this is the important thing, is to provide a stock pick every week that our system, which is technology-powered human intelligence, has identified as a future winner. This is designed to pick winning stocks. And what's especially interesting about Charging Fearless, I think, is that these stock picks are from anywhere in the world. So in other words, they're from US, Canada, UK, Australian exchanges, European exchanges, and more. I think our first four that we've seen locked and loaded are from Norway, Canada, Poland, and possibly Japan. So in the majority, these are stocks that you are likely to have never heard of. And what makes it different, what makes charging and fearless remarkable is it's short, it's insightful, it's actionable and it's completely original. And uh, I suppose just to bottom line it, you can sign up today free of charge in the show notes at the bottom of this podcast. I'm pointing down. <laughs> You're pointing at the screen. <laughs> yeah, so the show notes have the sign up link. Very good. The show notes are south of Emmett's screen, if anyone is, uh, if anyone yeah. is concerned. He, okay, he's preparing that, for his YouTube career. Yeah. It's, it's, it's in the description. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's good. <laughs> But I'm really proud of this product and I'm very excited by it because we've opened up every stock exchange in the world. We've always narrowed the beam down to the two big US exchanges, New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. But this is going to find the best companies in the world, irrespective of where they're listed, as completely free of charge. So why wouldn't you just sign up? That's great. Exactly. Why wouldn't you sign up? It's free. You're listening to this, so you don't hate us. Go ahead. That's a assumption. If you've gone through a half an hour of listening to us on this podcast, you must be somewhat interested <laughs> in what we have to say. So go on, sign up there. <laughs> you don't listen to things out of spite? <laughs> <laughs> spite listeners. Spite store. Oh, Sorry, David. Okay. Um, mailbag. Sorry. <laughs> Distracted. Uh, we're going to stick with the Irish team for the week. And uh, so our mailbag is concerning the recent announcement from Stripe that it's targeting a public listing within the next year. So for a company that has chosen to say private for so long and doesn't necessarily need to raise capital, why is it choosing to go public now, uh, Amory? Oh, I think Emmett has sorry, stuff to say on this sorry. too, but I can, yeah. I can very I'll come briefly... I'll you go for it. Yeah. Well, you we we have first? a for, forum of a mailbag here. We'll see. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I, I think it's 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 they wanted to reward the people who've invested with them for so long and probably also reward like many huge tech companies. Undoubtedly, they have staff that have been there for several years. And the reason they retain that staff for the several years is they have stock options. And mm. so it's probably giving people the opportunity to cash some of that in if they would like. Um, most likely they will do a direct listing as they don't need the money. They, uh, you know, it's, it's not a, mm. it's not a traditional IPO. They don't need to, to chase the cash in this instance. Um, but they have also stated if they do not do a public listing, they will create some sort of infrastructure in which some of their employees can sell shares if they would like. So it, it seems to just be, you know, they're getting to a point where they've reached maturity and there's probably people who've been invested for 
10 years, we're going, I would like to buy a vacation home. Yeah, mm, that's true. And it's funny you should say, Amory, because uh, only yesterday, which was Tuesday, the New York Times reported that they plan to raise two and a half billion dollars led by Josh Kushner's Thrive Capital to give them breathing room at a time when startups are, are you know, struggling to raise money. So wow. really, the, despite the fact that they announced layoffs and, you know, uh, cutting costs in recent weeks and they lowered the internal stock price used to calculate stock option. Yeah, grants. they did so a down round, didn't they? They did, they did, yeah. it, they did a down round. So it's, um, yeah, but I mean, this business really will never, it will never die for need of capital. That's that's just a fact of things. And I thought it was quite interesting that the investment is led by Thrive, who are actually an existing investor. Um, and it would not be used to fund operations or pay tax liabilities or uh, associated with employee stock grants. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's an interesting time for the business capitalization st- uh, strategy. And what I do know is that they're exploring... I think they've hired Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan Chase as advisors. Yep. Yeah, Correct, and yeah. and yeah, so that's where they they want to see should they go with IPO or direct listing. Yeah, it's interesting. I'd say there's a lot of public investors very excited to invest in Stripe. I would imagine maybe not oh, as yeah. much as this time two years ago when hmm. it was worth about a hundred million. People were baying for it to come public, but yeah, very yeah. interesting. Two Irish lads, just so everyone knows, the Collison brothers as well. So it's Pat and John Collison, isn't it? That sounds yeah. right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Former so the BT Young Scientist of the Year, Scientist right. of the Year, I believe. Like our very own <laughs> Shane Kern. We, uh, when, when we started my Wall Street first, a friend of mine rang me and said, hey, my, my kid's just great on computers. Will you give him a job? So next thing, a 13-year-old young man called Shane Kern came in and joined us. And he started to read our code at speed. And our full-stack developer, Alejandro said, wow, what this kid is doing is like tantamount to magic. He was reading code at speed reading and spotting bugs. He goes, there's a bug, there's a bug. And we're like, very good, nice magic trick. Here, go buy yourself, you know, (laughs) some chocolate at lunch. Anyway, Shane went on to win the BT Young Scientist uh, of the Year um, in the the, uh, tracks of the two Collison brothers and then has founded a business called... um, Evervault, Evervault, which Sequoia has invested in and all the rest. So one day I was uh, going into, while Shane was with us, actually, he he used to come back into us to just kind of do gigs because we figured he was better than just photocopy this type stuff. And um, and, uh, I said to him, I came in one day and I had nice clothes on. I said, I'm going in to meet the founders of Stripe. And Shane goes, oh yeah, tell them I said hi. And I was like, go on. <laughs> I was dressed like I was going to meet like the King of Ireland, you know. And he's like, yeah, which one do you mean? And I was like, uh, I think, I don't think it's Patrick. And he goes, yeah, I code off at him. And I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. And I'm not going to say, <laughs> I'm I've never been say I know you. intimidated by you're a teenager. You're embarrassing me. <laughs> exactly. That's so good. Anyway. Yeah. You should have put in a little clause in his intern contract, like, uh, Little tax on my Wall Street tax on his future earnings. <laughs> any any companies that are subsequently founded, we own. We own one percent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, that's great. There won't be an elevator pitch this week because instead you're going to find a pitch in our first edition of Charging Fearless, which you all agreed to sign up to through your listenership. Uh, <laughs> don't worry. You've contracted. Is, we have contracted with your ears. Don't worry. This is just a one-off this week. Elevator Pitch will be back next week. Amory, would you like to give just a quick teaser of what our 
new charging and fearless. Oh, sorry. I thought you were going to ask me to pitch my stock for next week. And I was like, well, it hasn't been picked. <laughs> so I was like, face. yeah, um, the stock that for this week, oh, I'm really bad at this without giving away stuff. Okay. The subject line for the email was every student knows its name and 4% of the company is owned by Disney. That's Love pretty good. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it we'll is. say yeah. it's a good one. By the so, way, on that, on that, you not that, well done, Amory. Do you remember that time uh, we said like, want to give a teaser to this yeah. week's stock of the month? And uh, you went, yeah, it was, sure, it's Bumble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's not a teaser, Amory. And then that's I never the lived it down. Like any time, like any subsequent <laughs> week, it was just. By the way, Amory, you can't say the the stock name. I was like, yeah. okay, I got it. <laughs> you did learn a new word there that week, though. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, that's it for. That's it for the, this episode, Solas. Thanks very much for joining me. Uh, remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. And just one last reminder, do sign up to Charging and Fearless, which will be in the show notes. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.